0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 45. We've had 66 Sundays in Isaiah and now 45 Sundays in Jeremiah, so we are rapidly approaching the conclusion. We started this over a year ago, uh, nearly two years ago, seems like 100 years ago sometimes that uh, we've been doing a chapter a week through the prophets, that is through Isaiah and Jeremiah, the back-to-back messages of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And I believe they're powerful, I believe they're necessary, particularly for where we are in our generation in this day and age, not knowing what is in front of our nation. And uh, if it is of an Isaiah type or a Jeremiah type, uh, we need to be prepared either way uh, for our nation's preservation or for our nation's destruction. And uh, so we need to uh, understand the doctrine of these two books. Today would be rather easy. Actually, I've been looking forward to this for some time. You might spot it there in uh, chapter 45. There's five verses. All right. So, uh, O ye of little faith... There have been Sundays that we have kind of rushed at the very end of the hour to try to get to the, the final chapter or the final verse of the chapter. Uh, today should be much simpler. I say that and watch me not, uh, not get to the end here today. God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's humble ourselves under His uh, authority. Let's uh, go to Him in silent prayer and ask for His faithfulness to open our eyes. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you rejoicing in your faithfulness, rejoicing in the grace of your truth, the grace of your provision, the grace that we live in in this church age, Father, in which each one of us as a believer priest permanently indwelled with God the Holy Spirit. Father, we call upon that faithfulness, so we thank you for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And as he indwells each one of us, he leads us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. Father, I thank You that the Word of God does not depend on how smart we are to figure these things out. It's how faithful You are to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us the ears to hear. So Father, humble us under Your truth that we might receive the Word implanted that is able to save our souls. I thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, where are we? We are in Jeremiah 45. And in Jeremiah 45, where are we? Well, we're going to back up a little bit Uh, Sequentially it's a little out of sequence and that's fine. Jeremiah is that way in many chapters. But you might recall that uh, for the moment uh, we left uh, Jeremiah and Baruch and and a lot of the uh, Jewish people, they were down in Egypt, you might recall. After the destruction of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, appointed Gedaliah as the governor. And then Gedaliah was assassinated and uh, those that were involved in that conspiracy uh, decided they had to flee to Egypt for their safety, for their protection. And along the way they captured Jeremiah and Baruch, they took some hostages with them. And that's kind of where we left things. Uh, Just because he was in captivity though did not stop Jeremiah. He kept preaching, he kept uh, giving the messages faithfully as unto the Lord. For this morning though we're going to back up slightly because we have uh, a recorded message that predates uh, these recent chapters it actually goes back to something comparable to chapter uh, 36 and so we can take a look at it this is the message which jeremiah the prophet spoke to baruch the son of neriah when he had written down these words in a book at jeremiah's dictation in the fourth year of jehoiakim the son of josiah king of judah And if you were with us all those weeks ago, back when we taught chapter 36, this uh, was an episode when Jeremiah was under house arrest and could not go preach it himself, so he dictated and and Baruch wrote the message down, and then, not only that, Baruch actually had to go and preach it, and uh, the scribe had to become a speaker, and uh, and he did so, and he faithfully did so on that occasion. And uh, we're going to gain some glimpses of some things here today that spark a thought, that spark some. Some uh, some more questions than answers, really. But Baruch develops a pride issue. And the pride issue, we're not clear on whether he had it all along or it was that event of chapter 36 that sparked it, when he got a taste for what it means to stand in front of people, and when he got kind of full of himself in that regard and started to think that maybe he may himself be called as a prophet at some point. And then maybe he gets to become Jeremiah's successor in, uh, in, a, in a double portion of Jeremiah's grace, you might think of it in, in that sense. And so when we get down to verse 5, we're going to see this as the, really the main exhortation of the chapter. It's also not clear who wrote this chapter. We're, uh, we're very quickly zooming in on the end of the book. And I believe by the time we get to chapter 52, that 52 was appended to the rest of the book by Baruch himself, that he uh, attaches the final chapter to the end of the book, much like uh, Joshua attached the final chapter at the end of Deuteronomy, for example, after Moses died, that it may be that Jeremiah 52 was tacked on at the end of the book after Jeremiah died, and Baruch is likely the scribe who did that. In fact, Baruch is likely the scribe that could have also added uh, what we're going to see starting next week. In chapters 46 through 51 we've got a summary of Gentile messages. We have chapters that are directed towards Egypt and Babylon and and all the the Gentile peoples around around Judah. And so the addition of those chapters at the end of the book of Jeremiah also could have been Baruch's compilation as, uh, as these things were put together. My question this morning is, well what if Baruch also added this chapter? If he added his own personal rebuke that uh, Jeremiah had delivered to him all those years before. In any event, so this took place in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And uh, if you want more detail on that, you can go get it out of chapter 36. "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, "'You said, Ah, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. "'I am weary with my groaning and have found no rest.'" Thus you are to say to him, uh, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am about to tear down, and what I have planted I am about to uproot. Uh, that is the whole land. And the rebuke uh, against the woe is me complaint is, is very forceful, it's very direct. As Baruch is throwing his own little pity party, the Lord points out that uh, he has lost nothing compared to what the Lord has lost in the contrast of what the Lord is sacrificing in the discipline to his own nation. And then the uh, final verse of the chapter, but you, verse 5, and, and you know, write, write your own name in there, it's, it's directed towards Baruch, but it's, it applies to Pastor Bob, it applies to everybody, all right? If this is the case, then change your thinking and humble yourself. But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Are you seeking great things for yourself? And you can think of it as a rhetorical question, but coming from the Lord God of the universe, it's pretty direct. The answer is yes, okay? That's what he's doing. And if he's honest with himself, he'll answer with a yes, and then he'll repent, right? Change of thinking is repentance. Are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give your life to you as booty in all the places where you may go. And here's the, uh, the promise. Here's the reward. Here's the, the great glory he can look forward to. He's going to live, okay? He's going to survive everything else when almost everybody else is not going to live in, uh, that has gone down there to the land of Egypt as we've been looking at it. All right. So, we're done. Right? There we are. Five verses. Didn't take long. Well, there's some detail here. We want to we get the detail. Chapter 45 records a personal message delivered to Baruch in the context of chapter 36. And to me, it's remarkable how this gets added to the canon of Scripture because it happened way back in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. All right. And uh, now years later, and we never had a clue of it. There was not a hint of it in chapter 36. So when Jeremiah wrote down chapter 36, Jeremiah chose not to include this information in there even though he's the one that preached it. He did not write it in the, in the context of that chapter. But it gets added here, and I find that to be interesting. The, um, if you're not familiar with Baruch, we can take some time to take a look at him here today. He is mentioned 23 times in Jeremiah. We've seen him repeatedly um, in chapter 32 Uh, It it really seemed to be a secular matter. In chapter 32, Jeremiah was purchasing some land and he needed someone to record the deed and he needed someone to file the deed and to make copies. And so uh, Baruch the scribe was was the uh, ideal candidate for that. And so he was on hand to handle an administrative matter, an earthly matter, we might say, a secular matter. But then in chapter 36, he was tasked to uh, to write uh, a scroll, to write the Word of God, and then to go preach it before the king. And that was the detail there. In chapter 43, you might recall, he was kidnapped along with Jeremiah and brought down to Egypt in chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. And, and in that chapter, it's interesting because uh, some of the, the political dynamics were, were brought into focus there. And, and we're not clear on the, on the details, but you might recall this was just a couple weeks ago, um, the, uh, the people didn't like what Jeremiah was telling them. And they said, you're lying to us. And then they went on to say, You're, uh, you've been poisoned against us by Baruch, you might recall. Um, they had agreed that they were, were going to obey whatever it was Jeremiah said, and then you know, he said what they didn't want to hear, so they called him a liar. And, uh, uh, and so we see in Jeremiah 43:2, Azariah, the son of Hoshea and Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord your God has not sent you to say you are not to enter the Egypt or reside there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to give us over to the hand of the Chaldeans. So they will put us to death or exile us to Babylon, all right? Now, we, we puzzled over this a couple of weeks ago because there's really no explanation. We don't know Why? They were pointing the finger at Baruch. We don't know what the dynamic was, the political dynamic between them and Baruch. But we can kind of piece that chapter together with this morning's chapter. We can kind of look at the, the what we don't know and kind of put them together between chapter 43 and chapter 45. It's clear that, that Baruch has ambition. It's clear that he's seeking great things for himself because that's what the Lord rebukes him on. And it's conceivable, it's actually kind of natural to assume that this is exactly what Azariah is also doing. They were called arrogant men in chapter 43. And there was some kind of a tug of war that was going on, a political power play that was going on. And uh, I realize this is hard for us to relate to because, you know, no one here would ever do anything like that, you know, or in a a Bible church, certainly. You might be surprised to find out that otherwise grace-oriented believers Uh, Sometimes they lose that grace orientation when something stupid happens, and then all of a sudden objectivity is chucked out the window, and now it's very subjective, and and then it gets very personal. And in those moments, uh, a a flock's in trouble, all right? And uh, it's the same thing in the Old Testament, and if there's indeed a power play going on between Johanan and Azariah on the one hand and Baruch on the other hand, um, it could also explain why they were going to Jeremiah in the first place. They were putting him in the middle of their tug of war as far as that goes. So uh, anyway, we don't know any of the other answers or even that answer. It's a little bit of a speculation on my part. But the Bible does call them arrogant men, and they were accusing Baruch of of poisoning Jeremiah's thinking and uh, of influencing Jeremiah where he would lie about his prophecy in uh, Jeremiah 43. So whatever else uh, is involved there, we'll have to content ourselves to did not know the details. So he is mentioned 23 times, really in four dominant chapters, chapter 32, 36, 43, and 45. And for a guy that doesn't appear all that much, just in one book of the Bible and only in four chapters of that book, it's amazing how many legends can build around him, (laughs) how many legends can be built up and extra biblical writings and apocrypha, uh, books of the apocrypha that are centered on Baruch in an interesting way. His brother is Sariah, the quartermaster, and, uh, and I accept that. That is the universal tradition. It's not totally proven. We could It's conceivable that there's two Narias and, and uh, they, they just coincidentally have dads by the same name. But uh, when we look at Jeremiah 51 verses 59 and 61, we have uh, the quartermaster that's listed there. God bless the quartermaster. All right, Jeremiah 51, 59 and 61 the message which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Nariah, the grandson of Maseiah, and he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Now, Sariah was the quartermaster. And it's interesting. I don't know. It's, it's, there's plays on words and there's other inferences that you can glean out of this. We'll say some more, I suppose, when we get to chapter 51. But there's a connection in vocabulary between quartermaster and rest. And the rest that, uh, that uh, Baruch is complaining about, that he's not getting any rest, that God is just adding sorrow to his pain and not giving him any rest. And some of the complaint that uh, Baruch is offering. You know, a lamentation is one thing. But if you never get around to identifying the sovereignty of God, then your lamentation is not a legitimate lamentation. It becomes a grumbling, <laughs> all right? And uh, you've, got to, you've got to follow up your lamentation with the recognition of God's sovereignty and your trust in God's faithfulness. Otherwise, you're just a grumbler. Um, so anyway, Jeremiah 51, we'll talk about Sariah in a few chapters when, when we get there. Uh, he's also mentioned in verse 61. So his brother goes off to Babylon and, and goes with uh, the King Zedekiah in his captivity while Baruch goes down to Egypt with the prophet Jeremiah. Now, there are traditions. There are traditions regarding Baruch and they're recorded. Some are reliable, some are not reliable. Some are so such hoaxes it's not even worth talking about them other than the fact that you're going to have co-workers that will ask you about it and uh, neighbors and other Bible skeptics. They'll think you're hiding books of the Bible from them. All right. Say, no, we're not hiding anything. We know all about 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Baruch. We're very familiar with these uh, forgeries and with these silly apocryphal texts. Traditions regarding Baruch are recorded by Josephus and those are the most reliable. His history is, is very well validated with other sources. Uh, as well as the Mishnah uh, Pretty reliable as far as those traditions are concerned. And the Talmud, all right? Both the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmud have traditions related to Baruch. The most interesting have Baruch bringing the book of Jeremiah to Babylon after Jeremiah's death. All right? Conceivable, possible. Uh, somehow the, the letter got sent to Babylon because Daniel was reading part of it. When, uh, when he was praying at the conclusion of the 70 years, Daniel was reading at least a segment of Jeremiah's prophecies. And we know that there were other letters that were written as well be, between Jerusalem and Babylon and, uh, and so forth. So it's not inconceivable that he could have uh, carried the book of Jeremiah to, uh, to Babylon The rest of it, though, is rather inconceivable. The dates don't work out well. We're spanning centuries. I don't know how long Baruch lives, unless he was a very, very young man, but there's no indication of that. Uh, The idea that he went on to become the teacher of Ezra, I find to be um, implausible. I I just don't think the the, the chronology on that syncs up very well at all. But in the the, uh, commentary on uh, the Megillah, or the Megiloth, in the commentary there, they do speak to that, that Ezra was the teacher, or that uh, Ezra was the student under Baruch. Uh, There's other texts as well that are called apocrypha. Uh, Some get more technical to call them uh, deuterocanonical, if you're Catholic, you like that term, or pseudepigraphal, okay? Uh, There's other expressions for these books. They don't belong in the Bible, all right? And that's very clear. Uh, They never have been accepted as a part of the Hebrew canon. And uh, even when the Septuagint brought them in, the Septuagint Septuagint did add uh, Baruch, first Baruch anyway, added one of these books to the Septuagint in a Greek translation, uh, but it was not considered part of Scripture uh, at that point. Um, We know what we're talking about with Deutero. Deuteronomy means second or like Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. So there's the canonical books that we have in our Bibles, the 66 books of the the Protestant Bibles, for example. But in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, Catholics needed some help. So they added some extra books to their Bible. And Baruch was one of them, all right? They added a handful of books to their Bible. If you have a Catholic Bible, or some other text, you might have uh, Bell and the Dragon, you might have some additions to Esther, you might have uh, an extra Psalm, uh, Psalm 151, you might have Baruch, some of these books, you might have Jubilees um, that have been added to the Catholic Bible, but like I say, that happened at the Council of Trent, uh, they, they don't belong in the Scripture, but they're called deuterocanonical. The other ones, pseudo, epigraphal. I'm saying this wrong pseudepigraphal there we go uh, they've never been involved in the bible and only the the fringe ever thought they should be and uh, and as such they cannot reliably add to the details in the bible and the talmud and and especially 3 and 4 they were written after the destruction of jerusalem in 70 AD <laughs> all right they were written in new testament times they were written in the in the second you know i think maybe even third century AD clearly could not have been Baruch from the 5th century B.C., all right? That's, that's clear enough. But If you want more on that, we can get them for you. Um, they're curious. They're not all that exciting. Um, typically, the only one that uh, that's in the Catholic Bible is simply identified as Baruch. That's all they just call it as Baruch, is what they call. Um, only when they're comparing it with the other uh, things does it then get a number where it's called one Baruch. And then there's two Baruch, three Baruch, four Baruch. Um, Number two is written in Syriac, by the way, not Hebrew, not Greek, but Syriac, the Syriac apocalypse of Baruch. And it was fairly common in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a lot of uh, apocalyptic literature and excitement about the coming of the Christ and a lot of uh, uh, myths that were being invented in writings. The Jews were all excited about uh, their coming Messiah and the end of the world and a lot of things like that. So, a Syriac apocalypse. There was also a Greek apocalypse, three Baruch. There was also an, an Ethiopic apocalypse that had some Greek translations uh, called the rest of the words of Baruch. Anyway, no value whatsoever. But it's curious to me how um, the, this one character draws so much attention, all right? And what I think it really comes down to is that in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, became the rise, think about it, came the rise in Judaism, came the rise of a prominent group of people. Who were they? They were the scribes, all right? And so the scribes and the Pharisees, these Bible experts, they began to develop in in the history of of the Jewish people, they began to develop in a sense of esteem and honor and value and they were looked up to. And so to me, it's kind of interesting how they would point to Ezra and they would point to Baruch in the in the old testament as as a couple of preeminent scribes and uh, no no wonder then that they were the ones that launched so many of these myths and traditions and old wives tales and and all the rest anyway none of that really matters for this morning uh but it is uh, it is curious so if you have a coworker or somebody that says you know well what about baruch or what about second baruch or these other books of the bible that they think or that we get accused of hiding from them, right? The gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas. And, and no, no shortage of things out there. The skeptics who hate the Bible to start with, they're going to keep throwing things at you because they think it means something, <laughs> all right? And we're way ahead of them. We've known about this stuff for thousands of years. Christians have been dealing with this stuff since day one. And so there's really no, uh, no uh, turmoil about any of that. All right. To the content then of this chapter, Baruch utters a typical woe is me complaint. The typical woe is me. And there it is in verse 3. You said, ah, woe is me. And that's not unusual. That's not uncommon. Jeremiah himself utters several of them. Uh, We had some in chapter 10 and chapter 15. Uh, It is a typical woe is me complaint. And and that's all too human. We do that because that's what we are, right? Right? We are subjective beings, and we experience things in the, in the unfolding of time, and we experience uh, circumstances and unpleasant things, testing, undeserved suffering. We go through stuff. It's called life. And we don't like a lot of it, <laughs> all right? And, and, and especially the stuff we don't like, and we don't because we don't know the reason for it. We start to assume in our carnality that there is no reason for it or that the reason for it is wrong. Or that God is not fair. Or there's a problem and it needs to stop and it needs to stop right now. And so this is what happens when we, when we are not applying divine viewpoint to the circumstances that we're faced with. So you're not necessarily carnal if you voice this out loud. Alright? Because Jesus voiced His lamentations out loud and He never sinned. Jeremiah voiced His lamentations out loud and in fact we've got a whole book of the Bible, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, right? And so... But we want to see the difference, though. In this, uh, in this lament, notice all woe is me. For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I have found no rest. It is negative, 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 and there's not a hint of any reliance upon the faithfulness of God. There's not, a, there's not a but to be found. There's not a yet, you know. When Jesus is on the cross saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. He follows it up with a yet thou art faithful, right? You are the God I've trusted since my mother's breast. And he, he goes on to quote the remainder of Psalm 22 in a, in a declaration of faith. There's no faith here at all anywhere in verse 3. It is a lack of faith. It is, it is carnality 100% with no uh, hint of any kind of reliance on the faithfulness of God. Uh, Jeremiah 10. Let's look at a couple of these previous ones. They're similar, but I think you'll notice the difference between a complaint and a lament. Jeremiah 10 and verse 19 And so um, there's a larger context all the way around here, but we'll just kind of zoom in. Verse 19, woe is me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. But I said, truly, this is a sickness and I must bear it. All right. So he has a lamentation, but he has a but. Okay? And that's what turns it from a complaint or a grumbling, and we're not to grumble against the Lord, and there's judgment if you grumble. But when you when you put a butt at the end of your complaint, okay, and you're able then to identify with, you know, God's got a plan. I have to endure this. And he goes on to destroy, you know, to talk about this. Truly, this is a sickness, and I must bear it. It is the will of God. My tent is destroyed, all my ropes are broken, my sons have gone from me and are no more. Anyway, and you'll notice, you've got stupid shepherds in verse 21. Um, You get down to verse 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself. And sometimes that's all you can do. Say, Lord, I don't know, but you do. Okay? I don't know. I don't know, but you do. You hold tomorrow. I'm just going to stay faithful and, and watch how you show yourself faithful. So a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps Correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. He's accepting whatever the Lord has for him. And he's, it's not fun, it's not pleasant, he doesn't like it, but he's willing because God assigned it to him, and he trusts that God knows what he's doing, and it will work together for good. All right, over to chapter 15, another lamentation in verse 10. Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me. And he's really not sad for his mother's sake. He's sad for his own sake. Um, And a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent, nor have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. Normally, to be hated as much as he was hated, you have to, you know, somebody has to owe you something. (laughs) Or you have to owe somebody something, or there's money involved, or there's a business deal that went bad. Typically, those are the, really the cases that, that generate a lot of bad feelings between people, all right? And yet, the Lord said, surely I will set you free for purposes of good. Surely I will cause the enemy to make supplication to you in a time of disaster and in a time of distress. It actually becomes the opportunity for evangelism. It becomes the opportunity for preaching. The fact that there is such hostility between you that's going to make it extraordinary when they come to you and they want some answers. <laughs> they come to you and they want to know, what's the truth of this? And the, the testimony that they're willing to listen to you, even the one that they hate, is going to be in the outworking of the plan of God, it's going to be an amazing thing to consider. And uh, you never know, as, as we heard last hour, you never know when uh, the person who says, don't talk Jesus to me, you know, he's just waiting to hear it. Uh, but he's, he's waiting to hear it in the, in the right kind of context when the Holy Spirit's convicting him. All right? Because he thinks he doesn't want to hear it. And if you miss that, get the MP3 and you can get that story that I appreciated very much. So here's Baruch and his uh, woe is me message. And so he talks about this. He says that God has added pain to his sorrow. Pain plus sorrow. All right? Even, um, you know, God is supposed to uh, comfort us in our sorrow, right? How does adding pain to sorrow, how does that solve anything? Why would God do that? You know, do we do that? Do we, if we see that our loved one is sorrowing, do we come along and kick them when they're down? All right. Or do we, do we come along with comfort? Do we come along with comfort? See, and what what Baruch is saying here is, God, you're not comforting me in my sorrow. You're adding pain to my sorrow. Why are you doing that? And he's complaining about it, but Scripture actually answers his question for him. Because, see, He's not responding to the sorrow. There's a sorrow that leads to repentance, but if you don't repent, guess what? A pain will be added to that sorrow. God will ramp up the discipline. You get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. God is just so faithful in applying discipline upon discipline upon discipline until we do listen. And I wonder sometimes, how long did it take for Baruch before it finally, you know, the sorrow didn't do it? Did the pain plus the sorrow do it? Or was there a step even after that? And what step was it? You know, Jonah was probably the, the hard headest of them all. I can't imagine, but you know, if you're in the belly of the whale under the water, that's that's rough, right? And then you get vomited up on the beach and you're all covered with with you know whale vomit. And uh, you know you realize, okay, is this what it takes? Because even then God didn't coerce his volition. Even then he said, Go to Nineveh, right? God does not coerce volition, but He knows how to increase the discipline, increase the discipline, increase the discipline, until such time as we say, "All right, enough, Lord, I'm done. No mas, right? I'm done. I'll go to Nineveh." Okay, because whatever the next thing is, on the you know the next step past whale vomit, Jonah didn't want to find out. See, I understand that. I've been there. Psalm 32. It's a great Davidic psalm, and there's such truth in this. But it speaks to discipline, and it speaks to how God does comfort, but He comforts the humble, and He comforts those that are responding to the discipline. And if there is no response, well then, there you go. So Psalm 32, verses 8 through 11. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. See, if you're not responding to the teaching and you just continue down that path of wicked, you're going to multiply the sorrows. You're going to add pain to the sorrows. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. So when we take that principle, we go back to Jeremiah and we see, you know, Baruch, you can complain about not being comforted, but you're not responding to the sorrow. See, you're not trusting in the Lord. So don't blame God when the loving kindness isn't surrounding you. You're getting pain added to your sorrow. But be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And I tell you, when you've been forgiven much, you rejoice much. And when you finally uh, allow that rebuke to correct you and you cast all that aside and you, you embrace the Lord and you repent and you get under His teaching and man, then there's, there's you know, no, no slowing down. You're just hitting it like a freight train in, uh, as fast as you can. All right, so there it is. Pain plus sorrow. Groaning to the point of exhaustion. Groaning to the point of exhaustion. You ever get sick or tired of being sick and tired? You know, you groan and you groan and you groan and you groan, and God's not listening anyway, and you're tired of groaning. And what does it do? Have you achieved anything? And there's even an allusion to Psalm 69 here, I think. Um, he says, uh, The Lord has added sorrow to my pain, and I am weary with my groaning. Does groaning wear you out? It's supposed to be service that wears you out we studied in the Greek the kapiao vocabulary from Paul in the New Testament. We, we labor to the point of exhaustion. We're serving God to the point of exhaustion. We should be, we should be drained in our exhaustion serving God, not complaining about the stuff God's uh, assigning to us. It's not a direct quotation, but I think that the inference is there in Psalm 69. And you think of the, the, the uh, groaning Psalm 69 and verse 3. I love Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. And so there's there's similar language there, if not a direct quote, at least an allusion. I am weary with my crying. But now David goes a step beyond a place that Baruch never goes. He says my eyes fail while I wait for my God. He has not stopped waiting. He's still waiting. And he hasn't seen it yet. His eyes are failing, but he's still waiting and he never gives up. The indication we have in today in Jeremiah 45.3 is he just gave up. God's added sor- pain to his sorrow and, and he's, not, uh, he's weary with his groaning and he's, he's not even listening anymore. And so it goes on and, and the rest of this is, is interesting. and A lot of this is, is uh, prophetic of the coming Christ here in this chapter. So uh, Baruch cites Psalm 69, yet fails to imitate the faithfulness of David. I think we got more examples as well, not just David. But how about Job? Though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust in Him. You know, it's, it's not a matter of the circumstances we're in. It's God's faithfulness and how He chooses to show His faithfulness. <laughs> and that's, uh, we don't get to pick that. It doesn't say run with endurance the race you feel like or the race you pick out for yourself, you know. I would love for God to show His faithfulness through me um, winning the lottery. I would like for God to show His faithfulness for me uh, thriving in the prosperity testing, okay? And uh, God you could, God can show His faithfulness in that. Uh, he just hasn't, hasn't done that yet, <laughs> okay? And and probably uh, can't, okay? Because I would fail the prosperity test and God knows better. So that's not a part of His plan. But He picks the plan. See, that's the point. We don't pick our own race, He picks the race for us. And then He chooses the manner in which He shows Himself faithful. He, chose, he, he, he does that, see? And, uh, and, and so if, if your loved one is dying, You know, don't think of it as, well, if they pull through and they live, then God shows Himself faithful. He's going to show Himself faithful either way. Dying grace if they're going to go to glory. All right? He is no less faithful if the answer to our prayers is something that we weren't praying for. See, we should have been better at at our prayers. We should have been willing to accept, not my will, but thine be done. We're all too often just saying, give us this, this, and we're not considering the alternative. Okay? Or how many times do we say, Lord, if it could be your will. But we don't mean it. We just say it. We throw it in front of what we really want, and then we say what we really want. And truth is, we didn't really mean that if it could be your will thing. What we really said is, Lord, I want this to be your will, so make it your will. Do what I want. Not how it works. So it's interesting. Then he says, no rest. No rest. Well, why is there no rest? God keeps providing it. The Lord is my shepherd. There is rest. It's available. Just because you didn't get it, doesn't mean he didn't give it. Baruch failed to accept the Lord's shepherding rest. It's there. Are you occupied with Christ? Are you living in the Word of God? Are you dwelling on eternal promises? That's where the rest is. And in to me, and we know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside the still waters. What are those about? Those are waters of rest. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's rest. He leads me beside still waters. That's rest. Even the waters are resting. He restores my soul. That happens in time of rest. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There it is. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. You realize circumstances don't thwart any of this. Verses 1 through 3 are still applicable, even if I'm in a place I don't want to be. Even if I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. That doesn't matter. God's still faithful. The rest is still there. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Anyway, we have Psalm 23 there. And Baruch is just failing to accept it. Say. And this is what happens. Again, subjectivity takes over. And we stop thinking clearly. We're we're out of fellowship. We're not cycling the doctrine. We're not thinking things through. And boy, our carnality just reacts. And Satan loves that. He can work with that. He can manipulate that all day long. And he can keep, you you, you keep plunging into those reactor factors and he keeps pushing your buttons and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. See. So, and and the, the sad thing is then believers call me on the phone and say, you know, pastor, the Bible's not working. God's a liar. The, the verses are wrong. Prayer doesn't work. Wait a minute. Okay? It works every time. If you're walking according to His design, if you're applying it properly, if you're humble before Him, don't tell me prayer doesn't work. Of course it works. And so we deal with some of these issues here as well. I think we're going to get a lot of this coming up in our Philippians class, right? Because in Philippians, we got so many of these faithful promises, how the the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And people want to claim that as an absolute, but it's not an absolute. It follows a long chain of things, including the commands to be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Then the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you've been disobedient to all that earlier stuff. Why do you think this is going to be an application? It won't be. Same thing here with Baruch. He has no rest, but it's there, it's provided for him. The Word of God is God breathed and profitable, right? All Scripture is God breathed and profitable. So if a given believer in a given circumstance is not profiting, whose fault is that? The Word is profitable, but you're not profiting. So where did that disconnect happen? Is it the Bible's fault? The Bible let you down? Or are you in carnality and and disconnected from the the source of the profit that's there in the Word of God? I answered my own question, didn't I? All right. So the... uh, I think that, that, that key is for us to highlight the part of prophet ubble," right? Because it's "ubble," that doesn't mean it always happens. It's prophet ubble," so I need to make sure that I'm receiving the Word of God in humility, that I might receive the Word of God implanted, that's able to save my soul. See? Again, another "ubble." It, it doesn't automatically do it. But if I'm, if I'm living it out the way it's designed, then yes, it will. Every time. Every single time. God cannot fail you. So here we have it. Now, verse 4 to me is, is interesting. It's like an Ira Stanfill song. It says in verse 4, Thus you are to say to him, Thus says the Lord, behold, What I have built, I am about to tear down. And so the Lord here is getting Baruch's eyes off of Baruch and onto the Lord to say, look, here's what I'm doing. Are you even aware of what I'm doing? Are you so wrapped up in your own pity party that you have no clue what the hand of God is is doing here on the Jewish people? And do you know how much it hurts? Do you know how crushing it is for God to discipline his children in the way that he's doing? He's defiling the place that He's caused His name to dwell. He's bringing Gentiles in to destroy the temple, to destroy Jerusalem. And and for 50, 45 chapters now, we've been talking about what a terrible thing this is for the Jewish people to endure. Have we thought about what God's doing here? Would it hurt Him to do here? Because how many thousands of years has He been leading up to this moment? He's been preparing a plan from Adam on to the Christ and so in the fullness of time he can send the Christ and yet here's his people rejecting him and he's destroying the temple and he's sending them off to captivity. That's not an easy thing for God to do. He's not doing it lightly. So thus says the Lord, I'm reading from verse 4 now, Jeremiah 45, "...behold what I have built I am about to tear down." And what I have planted, I am about to uproot. That is the whole land. And imagine how many, I mean, his investment of time and effort and energy and love and sweat and tears and everything to build up the Jewish people. And now he's tearing them down. He's not enjoying it. (laughs) He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? But it is necessary. He'll work through it. It'll work together for good. The people will come back from captivity. They'll build a new temple. All of this is uh, the, the human rebellion is not thwarting his plan, but he's allowing it, and it's giving him no pleasure. He's not enjoying it. Okay. And so, to me, it's interesting. I meant to bring the hymn. I don't. I forgot to bring it up here this morning. But the the Lord's reply placed Baruch's complaint in a pathetic proportion. Similar to the Ira Stanfield song, Follow Me, if you're familiar with that song. I won't sing it for you this morning. I'll recite a stanza or two, all right? But it takes a human complaint and it says, oh, really? Okay? And then it mentions something. Okay? So here in this verse, um, Baruch is talking about the rough time that he's having. I'm having a, a bad time, okay? I'm having a rough week, a rough month, a rough few years. Uh, the ministry's not taking me where I thought it was going to take me, <laughs> okay? Because he thought he thought there was great things in front of him. He was absolutely convinced that all he had to do was uh, be an apprentice to Jeremiah, and then boom! His ministry was just going to take off. But see, Jeremiah never died. <laughs> and here's Baruch, still the uh, you know, the scribe and stole the second banana and he's not, uh, hadn't been promoted yet. That bugs him more and more and more and more. So he's complaining about it and he hasn't had any rest. Doesn't remember the last time he had a vacation. And the Lord said, really? Do you know what I'm doing right now? I'm, I'm destroying my own inheritance. I'm defiling my own, the land of my own holiness. If you're familiar with the Iris Stanfield song, it's, it starts off, I travel down a lonely road, right, and no one seemed to care. The burdens on my weary back had bowed me to despair, right? And in, 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 this, in this hymn, in this song, the singer goes on and on about everything he sacrificed, everything he's lost. He gave up fame and fortune, see, or he's done all the service God owes him. See, I've done all this for you, and, and, and I mean so much to you. And, 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 and so as Ira wrote that hymn, I mean, he's reflecting all of us, right? All humanity eventually at some point, one day or another, we get this attitude, we all do. Then the reply comes back from the Lord. Oh, you've left a lot? You've given up fame and fortune? Let me tell you what I gave up. I left the throne of glory, Right? I left the throne of glory and counted it by loss. My, nail, my hands were nailed in anger upon a cruel cross. And so the answer that comes back as a rebuke, each stanza has a, a complaint on the part of the human being and then a response from the Lord that just takes that human complaint and puts it totally out of proportion in a, in a ridiculous kind of pathetic way. Anyway. You know the song I'm talking about? Everyone? Okay. A lot of you. I think Jacob sung it before. Others have sung it. All right. So I'm not going to sing it. But it's a good reminder. And anytime I think of uh, testing in this regard, it's, it's a good song to start singing. And this is a good verse to, to turn to and read. Are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. <laughs> If you're seeking great things for yourself, you're seeking the wrong thing. So the Lord exposed Baruch's unspoken complaint. Everything that he voiced in verse 3, here's one thing he didn't voice, I think he couldn't quite bring himself to say it out loud, but it's really what was bugging him, is he was seeking great things for himself. Can you imagine? You're like Prince Charles, Right? You've been the crown prince your whole life. You're a grandfather. <laughs> and your mom is, she's, she's going to outlive you, okay? <laughs> you keep waiting for Queen Elizabeth to finally die so you can become king of England. I don't think it's going to happen. And imagine, okay? How pathetic that, I mean, how sad if, if, if you're into that kind of thing. I mean, if you want to be king of England, okay? <clears throat> so here's Baruch waiting to be the next Joshua who followed Moses, or ready to be the next Elisha Elisha who followed Elijah. Because it seemed like the successor who spent that period, yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't fun being the second banana, but man, when he became first banana, look what happened. Joshua went in and conquered Jericho. He conquered the the land of Canaan. He, He brought them into rest. Moses couldn't bring them into rest. Yeah, he brought them out of Egypt, but he didn't bring them into rest. And Elisha, Elisha, we're told, got a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He had twice the power, did twice the miracles. Elijah raised one guy from the dead. Elisha raised two guys from the dead. See, got a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Had a greater impact, and greater ministry. It's interesting, too, I think, that in the selection of those followers, they got appointed when the, the first guy failed right? Moses failed when he struck the rock and he, and he cursed Israel. And so God said, all right, you're going to die and Joshua will take him into the land. Elijah failed, started boohooing over Queen Jezebel. And, and so God said, all right, you're, we're going to appoint your successor and you're done. You got to train him for the ministry and then you're done. Okay. It's interesting to me. So the Lord also exposed Baruch's unspoken complaint. He was seeking great things for himself, and so you need to stop it. Perhaps viewing himself as the next Joshua, the next Elisha. Instead, he is rebuked as the next Gehazi. And so we have these examples here, and it is interesting to me. It's interesting to, to, to view. Now, um, I'm not going to get lost in these stories. We should be familiar with them, but in Numbers eleven twenty eight. 28, Numbers 11:28 we're told that Moses or that Joshua the son of Nun was Moses' attendant from his youth. That's Numbers 11:28, Joshua the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth. So you talk about waiting a long time, okay? 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Well, how long does this take? And so as a child, he's being groomed for this, he's being prepared for this, trained for this. And then when I think the day finally comes, Joshua was humble enough to not want it. To think that he was not worthy of it. To think that Moses would have been the better one to take him into the promised land. See? That's why the Lord had to consistently say, be strong and courageous. Joshua 1. And I think when you read through Joshua 1, it comes out. I read it this way. I don't know if it's... uh, I don't think I'm wrong for reading it this way. But in Joshua 1... Uh, it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. And then there it is. God says, look, I got a plan and the plan's not Moses. Moses is dead. My plan is you. This is your assignment in your generation. Every place in which the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. And uh, verse 5, no man will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. There's a promise. Does that give you some courage going into battle? Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And so quit moping about not being Moses. Go be you. Achieve the things that God has for you in your day. Now, as I read through this, what I'm seeing is uh, a reluctance on Joshua's part, a, an unworthiness, a sense that he's, he's filling shoes that he doesn't feel he can fill. He's, he knows that he's stepping in there. I think it's, it's the right attitude. It's the humble attitude. It's not the uh, Baruch attitude. He wasn't seeking the great things for himself. Anyway, be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to the fathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all uh, the law which Moses my servant commanded you. So again verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now it just seems to me, maybe I'm reading it the wrong way, but you know if the Lord tells you to be strong and courageous six times in a chapter, maybe Joshua has an issue there that the Lord's addressing related to a reluctance or an unworthiness or a fear in, uh, in not being ready. Elisha, there's another transition there. You can read about it in uh, 1 Kings 19 and then it actually happens in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 when uh, Jeremiah gets in the fiery uh, chariot and is caught up to heaven and, and uh, the mantle falls and and uh, Elisha sees it, so he receives the double portion of the spirit. Let me give you in 2 Kings 5 the negative example because Elisha followed Elijah and then Gehazi could have been the next in line. But what a sad story. What a sad story. 2 Kings 5 20-27 through 27. And uh, a long context on this too, but um, Gehazi is effectively going to go and lie and speak on behalf of Elisha and try to score some, some booty, some plunder, some loot. And um, so he does in verses 20 and following here. And then he comes back. And we just grab this rebuke here. Um Verse twenty-five. So Gehazi comes back. He went in and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, "Where have you gone, Gehazi?" Okay. I don't know if you ever. I mean, depends on who your boss is and whatever. But you know, you're late coming back from lunch, or you know, you were. Don't lie to your boss if he's a prophet. Okay. (laughs) Um, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, "Your servant went nowhere. I didn't go anywhere." Okay? I didn't do anything. It wasn't me. And uh, verse 26, so Elisha said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? So he saw the whole thing. He saw it in prophetic vision. He saw Gehazi's greed. He saw the, the entire episode. Did not my heart go with you? Um, is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? No time for that. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. There it is. Okay? In any event, sin unto death in the Old Testament. And so I think this is what Baruch is on the verge of. All right? Now, Positive note to finish, um, the fourth year of, uh, of uh, Jehoiakim was some time ago. And Baruch is still around. So he didn't die the sinner to death. I believe he responded. He responded to Jeremiah's rebuke. He responded way back in chapter 36. And he continued to be of service to Jeremiah in the, in the consequences after that. And he was humble enough. To put this chapter in in the book of Jeremiah. See, if he was the scribe who did it. And even if he wasn't, by the way, if Jeremiah wrote this, I don't care, either way, if if Baruch wrote chapter 45 or Jeremiah wrote chapter 45, either way, it doesn't matter, because Baruch had a chance to take it out (laughs) after Jeremiah died. All right? So the fact that it remains in the canon of Scripture, that chapter 45 remains in uh, the book of Jeremiah is a, a testimony to Baruch's humility and his willingness to have his own rebuke, his own discipline put in uh, in the Bible in this way. Seeking great things for thyself, do not seek them. Remember, it's great as the Lord and greatly is he to be praised. It's not, you know, great as Bob and greatly is he to be praised or any of the things like that, right? Um, we... Uh, we should be focused not on our promotion, our advancement. If it, if, it, if it comes, it comes. But we're not seeking it. All right? And when it comes, because we weren't seeking it, when it comes, we're thankful. We're humble. We're unworthy. We, we want to then, we desire then to work all the harder. Grace is a motive. See, people think legalism is a motivation. No, can't hold a candle to the motivation of grace. Grace can motivate beyond anything when you truly respond to the grace of God. You will work harder, longer in appreciation for the right reasons in the right way. It's a glorious thing. So Psalm 131, Psalm 145, we wrap up with these. Um, Are we seeking for glory? Are we seeking for great things? We're not the ones doing great things. He's working through us. If, If we achieve anything... That's glory to God because He used such an imperfect tool to bring about such great results. It's not credit to the tool. Does the ax get the glory or the hand that wields the ax? See, we learned that in Isaiah, did we not? The ax gets no glory. It's the the hand that wields the tool. It's the hand that knows what it's doing. It's the one that wields the tool. If you're a tool, don't boast in being a tool. Be humble, be faithful, prepare yourself to be an effective tool and don't ever forget that you are the tool. You're not the one doing the work. God's doing the work. And if what I've been told, see, I'm not good with tools, but I've heard stories from tool people, okay, that that sometimes um, you, you know what, even when you know what you're doing, sometimes it doesn't go well because you've got a, a, a faulty tool, okay? Your tool broke or you're kind of improvising. You're you don't have exactly the right tool, but you you got something close enough, okay? So you're trying to make it work, but it's not exactly the right tool. And, and human beings like to blame the tools. God uses imperfect tools all the time. All day, every day, He's using imperfect tools. And He's bringing about His perfect results. Isn't that a glory? So anyway, think about that in Psalm 131. Don't seek these great things. Um, I'll have to close with this, but um, Psalm 131. See, I'm running out of time. A five-verse chapter, and I'm running out of time. A couple weeks from now, we're going to have a seven-verse chapter, and that one should go pretty well too. Psalm one thirty-one. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eye is haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. What a great psalm. That should be all of our request. You know, I'm, I want to pattern my pulpit ministry after Spurgeon, right? Not the famous one, his grandfather, okay? His father, was, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, two generations before him, and his dad was also a pastor. But the grandfather, this anonymous pastor in a little village of Water Beach and all this, and, and we would have never known who he was except for his grandson got famous, <laughs> okay? That's who I want to be. I just want to be some anonymous, faithful guy that pastored a flock for 60 years and then went to be with the Lord, okay? So, nor do I involve myself in great matters. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 7, great is the Lord and greatly is He to be praised. And, and again and again throughout this, Every day I will bless you, I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly is He to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Anyway, if we're not testifying of Him, if we're not boasting in the Lord, then we're boasting in ourselves and uh, we'll come under His judgment in that regard. Father, I thank You for Your faithfulness. I thank You for Baruch. I thank You for this uh, short chapter being added into the into the text. And uh, I pray we might learn from this example that uh, we occupy the place you have for us and stay obedient, running with endurance the race that's set before us. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your truth. And thank you for your Son who makes all this possible. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And Father, if if it was not for His work, if it was not for His faithfulness, uh, none of us would be here and none of this would matter. But here we are because of your Son and died his faithfulness. May we always, always testify to him. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name, Amen. All right, we're going to dismiss.